Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Her head bowed, Ann Putnam Jr. listened as the confession she'd written was read out loud. It had taken her a long time, 14 years, in fact, to reach this point, to admit publicly that what she had said in court all those years ago was wrong and to ask for forgiveness. She hadn't done it out of anger or malice, she said. She'd just been a kid when it all happened, and she had no idea at the time that what she was saying was a lie. Still, there was no room for an oops-my-bad apology here. What Anne had said in a supposed court of law got 20 people killed. 19 were executed, and the last died because of the awful conditions in the jail. A four-year-old girl had even been arrested and held. And while she survived, her mother and her sister didn't, and she was mentally disturbed for the rest of her life. Anne now confessed that she had lied about everything, and she was sorry. What I did was ignorantly being deluded by Satan, the confession read. I desire to lie in the dust and earnestly beg forgiveness of God and from all those unto whom I have given just cause of sorrow and offense, whose relations were taken away or accused. The date of the confession was August 25th, 1706, 14 years after the Salem Witch Trials. Chances are, this is a case you've at least heard about. It's been immortalized on stage and in film. I know you, John Proctor. You love me. Thanks to an Arthur Miller play called The Crucible, written in 1953, That drew some not-so-subtle parallels between those trials and the communists-are-everywhere red scare of Miller's day. A lot of the details were, of course, wrong. Hollywood, don't you know? But the basics were pretty close. It's just, as much as has been written about the Salem cases, the impact they had on the current judicial system is often a footnote at best. And that impact was incalculable. It sort of reminds me of the Scottsboro Boys trial from earlier this season and that it's not a traditional crime story and that there wasn't really a crime to kick it off, but the legal battles inspired by these accusations and wrongful convictions had huge ramifications. So we're going to look at the case from that perspective. I think it's clear that in 1692, the legal system largely failed. To help tell this story, I talked to this guy. My name is is Emerson Baker, and I'm a professor of history and vice provost at Salem State University. And I'm the author of A Storm of Witchcraft, The Salem Trials, and the American Experience. To understand what happened in Salem, or more accurately, to kind of come close to understanding, because there's still a lot about the case that's baffling, we have to start with this. 
Now, to us, this seems crazy in many levels. But please understand, in the 17th century, that specters are real. Spirits are real. Witches are real. They're, they're in the Bible. Everyone believes in witches. Everybody believes that witches can produce specters, uh, which can harm people. So there's no doubt about that. Popes and kings and everybody believes that. It's tough, of course, to accept that as a baseline fact in this day and age. But we're going to try here because as anyone who's ever been in therapy has probably heard once or twice, sometimes it's important to acknowledge that what's not real to you is 100% real to someone else. And you'll never wrap your head around what the hell happened if you don't just accept that. In Protestant society in New England at the time, before the age of science, everything you see is a sign of God's pleasure or displeasure. Comets, lunar eclipses, hurricanes. To fully grasp this story, you have to go back even further in time to 15th century Europe. Back in the 1400s, humans were kind of stupid. I mean, don't get me wrong, we're surely stupid right now, too. As I'm sure some punk will point out in some futuristic version of a podcast in 600 years. But in the 1400s, we believed a lot of things we know today are stupid. Like, for example, most thought the sun revolved around the Earth. Copernicus wouldn't publish his book touting the heliocentric theory until the mid-1500s. And even then, he wouldn't convince many. People thought that their olive trees would fare better if they had virgins plant them. And people believed that your neighbor might hand over her soul to the devil and pester you to do the same by pinching and hitting you. And hey, I'm not judging, at least not much, because if researching this series has taught me anything, it's that people haven't changed all that much over the centuries. We just keep learning new things and adapting to new environments. But really, what's inside is pretty much the same. Without some of the scientific answers we have today, people in the past had no shot at making sense of things people can make more sense of today. Like why a healthy baby might fall asleep and not wake up, or why somebody's moods might dramatically shift without warning. Things that happened that were good were generally credited to a higher power, and in 15th century Europe, the predominating religion was Christianity. If you believed that all good came from God, then it makes sense that you might blame bad things on evil spirits, Satan specifically. This is a couple of actors in a reenactment used as part of a Geographic Channel documentary. This was not the work of Indians. I believe it was a devil specter did this. Witchcraft? Aye. I'd be a good Christian. Why would I be plagued by witchcraft? And the answer to that was simple. The devil is powerful. Anyone is vulnerable. And if you believed that, you pretty much had to believe that you, too, might be vulnerable. And you'd find that scary. And scared humans have a tendency to go a wee bit overboard in hopes of protecting themselves. That's why being a witch was a capital offense. This was codified in a lot of places, beginning with England's Henry VIII, whose Witchcraft Act of 1542 marked the first time witchcraft was designated a felony punishable by death. There no doubt were cases before this, but the first witch trials I found documented were in 1441 England. In one, a woman named Marjorie Jordamain seems to have had the audacity of being smart in a world where women were largely illiterate and uneducated. 
It's a fascinating case worth reading, but the short version is she worked as a medical advisor for Eleanor, the Duchess of Gloucester, who asked a couple of house members to predict when King Henry VI was going to die because her husband would become the king if that happened. And Henry got so spooked when he learned about the prediction of his supposedly imminent death that the two helpers were arrested. One was drawn and quartered. Eleanor was imprisoned for the rest of her life. And Marjorie Jordamain, a supposed witch who started it all, was burned at the stake. Now, there were thousands of witch killings, the details of most of which are lost. You can find shadows of these stories in history books, like an apparent epidemic of witches that kicked off in 1572 in a small German settlement called St. Maximin. A woman named Eva was accused of using witchcraft to murder an infant. After some inhumane torture, Eva confessed and was burned at the stake. If the goal of killing Eva was to protect the settlement, that didn't seem to work. Within 20 years, about 500 people, nearly a quarter of all of its residents, had been killed for witchcraft. In early 17th century England, King James I, yes, that's the Bible guy, was a big believer in the whole witches among us idea. And he was a bit paranoid about people trying to off him. And he had good reason, because people were trying to kill him. Catholics especially weren't fans because this was the Reformation era and England was Protestant. Catholics had to worship in secret. There were three Catholic assassination attempts in a single year against King James. He believed in witchcraft and people routinely were trying to kill him. And so he wrote a book about it called Demonology. And it's pretty popular. It's readable, it's concise, it's learned. It's actually a rather clever piece of work, and it's a mandate to the British to hunt witches. This is from a documentary by Timeline called The Trials of the Pendle Witches. James's book was popular, and he by no means stayed on the witch-fighting sidelines. The king would take part in witch trials. He absolutely believed in them. And in the 17th century, before America was an actual thing in Salem, a British settlement, Its nascent legal system was based on England's. Witchcraft was a felony over there, so it was a felony over here, too. Now, most capital trials weren't held in small settlements like Salem. They were handled in Boston, which was about 16 miles to the south. But the whole area was in this weird state of flux because, in 1691, King James II had revoked the Charter of Massachusetts, which gave the area autonomy and the right to self-rule, and passed the Declaration of Indulgence, which prohibited discrimination against Catholics. The Puritans in New England weren't fans of this and, long story short, managed to get James No. 2 to approve a new charter, this one calling for the king to appoint a royal governor of Massachusetts Bay plus a lieutenant governor. All of this was just starting to settle down when the first whiff of witchcraft surfaced in Salem. That meant that the people now in power were still trying to feel their way around and figure out who should be in charge of what. The new charter did offer a little guidance, though, in that it called for special courts to be set up when needed. And so that's what happened. The new governor, a guy named William Phipps, sent his lieutenant governor, William Stoughton, to serve as chief judge to a special court. 
and the rulings they would make would change our judicial system for good. Now you might be wondering, what crime kicked off those first rumors of witchcraft? Well, none that we would recognize today. It's not like there was a murder that had been baffling enough that people said, oh shit, must have been witchcraft. Rather, a couple of young girls started having fits. And that's it. Not to say they weren't worrisome fits. They appear to have been incredibly disconcerting to the people witnessing them. The girls were described as convulsing, speaking gibberish, hallucinating, and their bodies would suddenly go rigid, so stiff that adult men, plural, working together, could not change their shapes or make them relax. What caused this is a huge, centuries-old question mark, one that I won't pretend to have come anywhere closer to solving, but there are some theories. First, this was a hard time to be alive. Deadly smallpox had recently swept through the settlement, infant mortality was insane, In 17th century New England, about 40% of people died before reaching adulthood. On top of that, settlers were warring with Native Americans, and the violence of some of these battles was incredibly gruesome. These weren't shoot-em-from-afar confrontations. These involved rape and beheading. Entire families wiped out of existence. And all this is taking place in the what we now know as the Little Ice Age, the worst weather in a couple hundred year period, a time of horrific winters, killer frosts well into the summer, hot, dry summers that killed crops, and then early frosts in the fall. There's also this. What's really interesting about this group is what you were really talking about, uh, a group of, of, of young women who are finding themselves in very difficult circumstances for the most part in 1692. There is, most of them are servants. That means they're sort of at the bottom rung of society in these sort of middle to upper middle class kind of households that they work in. Um, again, in the 17th century, it was okay to, to use physical violence on your, on your servants to, you know, sort of cuff them around if they misbehaved. After 25 years of reporting, I'm comfortable saying that the issue of control is a common denominator in a lot of crime. Crimes are often committed by people who feel entitled to control others to begin with, or by people who've lost so much control that they lash out and exert it anywhere they can. When you look at the accusers in this case, they had no control. In addition to what Baker said, in Salem, there was a shortage of young men, so you were considered lucky to get married. And if you did get married, you were pretty much that guy's property. You didn't speak in church. Your husband spoke for you. You might be taught to read so you could read the Bible, but writing was for men. Women had very little agency. Not all of the accusers were teenage girls, but the few who deviated were largely still powerless, like John Indian, a man who claimed to be afflicted. He was enslaved. So imagine what it must have been like to suddenly be paid so much attention to have people listening to you in a world that normally devalued you. Another possible cause of this madness is, you know, actual madness. One of the two girls first afflicted in Salem was Abigail Williams, who was living with her aunt, uncle, and cousins. One of the cousins was Betty Paris, the other afflicted girl. Records are, of course, spotty. But what's been gleaned is that Abigail was likely orphaned. Some have speculated it might have been in one of those awful frontier battles, and that's certainly what Arthur Miller imagined when he wrote The Crucible. 
But whatever the reason, it was still traumatic to lose your parents back then, even if it wasn't terribly rare. I mean, it would be completely reasonable to think Abigail might have had some mental health issues if she had indeed lost her family. I think it's clear to me that most of these girls at the center of the affliction are suffering from some psychological damage, right? Um, that some of them who've been war refugees from Maine are suffering from PTSD. I'm pretty sure that some of the early victims really fit well with a, a diagnosis of mass conversion disorder as well. I, you know, I really don't think there's that much of a deliberate hand. Maybe it's because I like to think maybe the best of people. We know now that mass psychogenic illness is a thing. In simpler terms, it's mass hysteria. We humans are weak sometimes, especially when it comes to fear. If you're convinced there's an outbreak of, say, dizziness and headaches, and you worry enough that you might catch it, you can worry yourself so much that you start showing the symptoms. There are documented cases of all kinds of weird things catching without scientific explanation, fits of laughter among schoolgirls in Tanzania in 1962 that sometimes lasted for days, fainting attacks and nausea hitting some 300 people in 1980 in England, more than a dozen students and one adult developing Tourette-like symptoms in 2011 in New York. And don't underestimate the power of suggestion. Abigail's uncle was Samuel Paris, a Puritan minister in Salem Village. You usually hear Salem referred to as though it's one location, but it actually wasn't. There was Salem Village and Salem Town. They were politically joined, but there was a big schism when it came to class and money. Salem Village residents were more rural, farmers and such. People in Salem Town were more akin to city folk, though still without indoor plumbing and fancy department stores. In Salem Village, which is where the accusations really kind of start, we are talking about a huge kind of political religious divide over who's going to run the community, who's going to hire and fire the minister, and who likes the current minister and, and who doesn't. But, th- but that's reflected, I think, in some ways in the colony-wide problem that Massachusetts is facing at this time, where in the spring of 1692, they're waiting for the arrival of a new governor, Governor Phipps, who's coming from England. Um, he's going to be coming with a whole new charter, a whole new form of government for the colony. And so that's a very unstable circumstance. People are worried what the future is going to hold. Is Massachusetts going to still be a, a Puritan colony that's very independent, or is it going to lose any of those rights? There was big tension between the town and the village. The townspeople felt a bit superior. They were more respectable. The village folk were the laborers whose toiling put food on everyone's tables. There was one church for the two factions, and whoever led that church was stuck in the middle of this maddening feud. That poor guy would bring his family into town, set up shop, and then just try and do his job, only to end up with the two sides fighting over his salary and whether he'd be given the wood he was promised. I mean, today we negotiate for vacation and bonuses. Back then, it was wood for the winters. Before Paris, there was a minister named George Burroughs who had hightailed it after the parishioners stopped paying his salary. Paris took over, and things weren't any better. He was immediately caught between the fighting sides, and his pay was routinely sacrificed because of it. I mean, this wasn't fun for a guy who had a family to feed, a family that included his orphaned niece Abigail, and his frustrations seemed to come out in his sermons. He would say things like, if ever there were witches, 
men and women in covenant with the devil, here are multitudes in New England. He pointed to the 12 disciples and basically said, you know, if one out of those 12 was a witch, just imagine how many of you must be. I mean, mathematically, it's got to be like dozens, right? Whether these sermons planted the idea in Abigail and Betty, we'll never know. What we do know is that they started having fits. Doctors couldn't find a cause, and within a few weeks, everyone was pretty confident that witchcraft was to blame. An enslaved woman named Tituba aimed to help by making what was called a witch cake. It's basically rye flour and some pea from these seemingly sick girls mixed together, baked, and fed to a dog. The idea was that the witch possessing Abigail and Betty would have left traces of herself inside the girls, and thus there'd be traces of her in their pee, and by eating the cake, the dog would flush out the witch. I told you they were stupid back then. That didn't work, but word spread that Tituba had performed this bit of counter magic, which put a spotlight on her that was only made worse when Abigail and Betty ID'd her as the witch tormenting them. Tituba denied this at first, but then she was tortured. We know nowadays that people will confess to just about anything to stop torture, and that's what Tituba did. She confessed and named two women, Sarah Osborne and Sarah Good, of being colleagues in witchdom. Marilyn Roach's book, The Salem Witch Trials, a day-to-day chronicle of a community under siege, is worth reading if you want to learn how all of the madness unfolded over the subsequent months. But the bottom line is this. More and more people in Salem fell into fits and claimed witches were tormenting them. Most were young girls, but not all, which complicated things. Some adult women claimed to have been bewitched, as did a few men. Without those claims, it's likely no one would have been hanged for the accusations, because even in 1692, the law stopped short of believing everything a kid said. But an adult was another matter. Those dozens of afflicted would accuse some 200 people of witchcraft, and the trials seemed never-ending. And again, imagine what it must have been like to wield such unfamiliar power especially these socially neglected girls and women. Imagine being one of the unafflicted, watching the supposedly afflicted. Not only would that have been scary as hell, could I be targeted next? But human nature being what it is, I'm sure there was plenty of subconscious jealousy involved to boot. From the beginning, there were doubters. And this is an important part of history that, if you're looking for it, you'll see repeated again and again. When someone shrugs off abhorrent behavior of the past as, well, they didn't know any better, argue with them, push back, because there have always been people on the right side of things. There were always abolitionists. There were always civil rights advocates. And there were always people who saw the mass hysteria in Salem, Massachusetts for exactly what it was. That's not to say they didn't believe in Satan or witches but they didn't necessarily believe the accusations. Crazy children are jangling the keys of the kingdom and common vengeance rights. The Lord not give my wife to vengeance! John Proctor was a landowner in Salem. That clip was Daniel Day-Lewis portraying him in the movie. Described as a huge man, stocky in build, he was a widower who'd remarried a woman named Elizabeth. 
Proctor had fathered some nine kids, not all of whom survived past childhood, and he was generally respected, but it doesn't seem he behaved in a way that many found respectable. He was, in a word, mouthy. He had no problem vocalizing what some of his neighbors were quietly murmuring about all of these witch accusations. He said the girls were full of it, that they were liars. When a servant girl in his house fell into fits and blamed a neighbor, Proctor at least gave her a tongue lashing and probably a lashing lashing. Basically, he think he could beat the witchcraft out of Warren and these other young girls if he just had the opportunity. Because Proctor just thought the whole trials and everything was just, was just nonsense and that these girls really were faking the whole thing. When Proctor's wife Elizabeth became one of the accused, he decried the whole thing even more loudly. In today's language, he said, This is ridiculous. If you believe everything these dumb kids say, you're going to end up with everyone in Salem labeled a witch. After that, some of the girls said, You know what? John Proctor's specter has been trying to make me pledge loyalty to Satan because he's a witch, too. So both John and his wife were arrested, as were, soon enough, their son Benjamin and daughter Sarah. And the trials looked a little like our trials look today. It's easy to assume that everything was night and day for modern times, but if you were transported back to 1692 and walked into one of these court hearings, you'd probably piece together what was happening. So this was not like some sort of kangaroo court. It it was a court with things like grand juries and and trial by jury and and witnesses. But there also, too, are some real differences that I I think uh, perhaps in some ways sort of precipitated the, the problems. There were multiple judges instead of one, so more along the lines of our appellate or Supreme Court panels. And those judges listened to witnesses and looked at evidence that jurors weighed too. But there were some key differences. There were no prosecutors. That gig was basically rolled into the judges' jobs. The judges would ask question after question of both the accused and the accusers. There also were no defense lawyers at all and no witnesses called on the defendant's behalf. The only defense one had against these charges was their own word. And if you're a judge who believes in Satan and evil spirits, do you really believe that a possessed person is going to come clean without a fight? Also, the supposedly afflicted people were clustered in the courtroom and allowed to make outbursts that would 100% shut down a courtroom today. I mean, once upon a time in 1970, Charles Manson jumped on a table and silently held up a newspaper with a headline saying, Nixon believed he should hang. And that threatened a mistrial. I saw a case overturned because jurors had been shown a photo that looked like it could have been the defendant's mugshot. It wasn't even really a mugshot. It was a driver's license photo. But even just seeing the mugshot was deemed prejudicial, so the guilty verdict was set aside and the guy got a new trial. In this case... You have this bizarre scene that was repeated in the courthouse in Salem where you would have uh, one of the accused on trial, and in the middle of it, there the afflicted girls who were watching, the, the alleged victims of these crimes, would be watching the court proceedings, and all of a sudden they would start screaming and shrieking, saying that you know a certain specter was hitting them or sticking them with pins, or they'd start gagging and say, oh, you know, try to choke me, and this kind of thing. The idea that this might be prejudicial just didn't seem to strike anyone as a thing. Rather, the judges literally pointed to these reactions and said to the accused, 
How can you stand there and say you're not doing anything wrong when Mercy Lewis just started convulsing because you looked at her? Most of the experienced judges who've been involved in witchcraft cases before that had not ended up in, in people dying. And I think the whole atmosphere in the colony in 1692 turned the judges into, into hanging judges. If you look at the first questioning on the first day of the first hearings of the witch trials, where Judge Haythorne is asking Sarah Good questions like, why do you afflict these children? When did you start doing it? How long have you been in league with Satan? And they might as well ask, and when did you stop beating your husband, right? It was hard to argue that you weren't doing anything when Abigail Williams was screaming, I see a specter hanging from the roof beam. And then the judges would look up, see nothing, but accept that it was true. There must be a spirit hanging there. Why would Abigail say it if it weren't the case? This was called spectral evidence, and it ensnared dozens upon dozens, including that poor Reverend George Burroughs, the one who had left after the townspeople stiffed him of his pay. He hadn't lived in Salem long, but his affiliation there would cost him money, his reputation, and eventually his life all because of what his specter was supposedly doing around town. Spectral evidence sounds a little crazy to us today, but what it really is is the idea that someone's specter or spirit or perhaps ghost, we might say, committed a crime against somebody, and that that a person's specter was harming the afflicted girls. Back in the day, spectral evidence was a thing long before Salem, but it was mostly a side note. Usually spectral evidence, if it's used at all in witchcraft cases, is again, in one of these supporting roles. But in Salem, it takes a rare, rare chance to, for, to really take front and center stage where people are first accused about spectral acts by this group of really kind of teenage girls, generally referred to as sort of the afflicted girls. And so everybody who was tried in Salem, the primary accusation against them was spectral evidence. And then they would start looking for other evidence to sort of collaborate, uh, excuse me, corroborate <laughs> That, that evidence. So the accuser would be writhing on the floor, which these judges accepted as primary evidence. So they'd point to the girls and say, well, how do you explain this then? They say you're causing this. And the accused would shrug. I know not, they'd say. The exasperated judges would say, damn, you must be really heartless to cause this pain and not even be willing to stop it. That you won't stop bewitching these girls just proves that you're a witch. The only thing the accused people could say that satisfied the judges was, yes, I'm a witch. Anything short of a confession was dismissed as a lie. There was absolutely no presumption of innocence. These poor people were charged with proving that they weren't witches, which is kind of a hard thing to do. You can't prove it negative, especially a supernatural one. So many confessed. You need to say, well, why would someone confess to a capital crime? And, and honestly, the answer in, in, in most cases is because the use in the court of what they would mildly or euphemistically call judicial torture, that mild torture. We know, for example, in 1692, John Proctor writes from prison complaining to several of the ministers that his son and several of the other teenagers in, in prison are uh, being, being tortured. They're being tied neck and heels. And what that, what that means is you're sort of, uh, you're clapped in irons and have your, your neck tied to your heels. And then you're hung upside down until the blood starts gushing out of your nose. Now that will not kill you, but when they're doing it to you, 
you think it might, right? And it may loosen you up after a day or two of that off and on to sort of say, okay, what do you want me to sign? What confession do you want me to sign? Because I can't take this anymore. The judges didn't just want personal confessions, however. They wanted to know who else in Salem was in on this thing. So the tortured accused would then point to accomplices. And that's how the circle of accused kept growing bigger and bigger until it threatened to swallow all of Salem. While Salem's accused awaited trial, they were hauled to a jail that was beyond disgusting. It reeked of human waste. It also had been built to handle only a few prisoners at a time, but thanks to the epidemic of witchcraft in Salem, this place was packed. There was no air circulation, so in the winter it was freezing, in the summer it boiled. Dozens of Salem residents were locked up there, together in the same room, month after month, because back then there was no Bill of Rights, no Fourth Amendment in the Constitution guaranteeing due process. That wouldn't come for 84 more years. So these people just languished, I mean, festered, really, in jail. Four-year-old Dorcas Good was among them. Her mother, Sarah Good, had been one of the first accused. Sarah Good had just given birth and was locked up with her infant. Dorcas was separately accused of witchcraft, and the little girl easily confessed, Sure, I'm a witch. And this won't surprise any parents. When my kid was four, he was convinced he was Mega Man. Once I got him to go to school by telling him he was an alien robot disguised as a little boy with a mission to gather information on his classmates. And kids will believe anything. Poor Dorcas watched her infant sister die in the decrepit jail, then another prisoner, an adult woman. Dorcas survived the ordeal, but the psychological damage done to this kid was said to have scarred her beyond repair. She would die poor and homeless by age 16. That she survived it all was lucky. The first supposed witch to be executed was Bridget Bishop. She had been accused of witchcraft before, apparently, because she had rotten luck. Her first husband died after six years of marriage. Her second husband died after just one. People thought two dead husbands dying within two years was too much, so she was tried for bewitching her second husband. But she was acquitted. Lack of evidence, you know. She wouldn't remarry again for 20 years. That man, Edward Bishop, was a real winner, too. He joined the chorus of accusers by saying, yep, my wife does praise the devil. She wasn't the first accused in the 1692 epidemic, but she was the first to die. She simply could not combat the so-called evidence her accusers presented, that being the violent and crazy fits that they would suddenly burst into as soon as she so much as entered the room. As the Reverend Cotton Mather wrote at the time, there was little occasion to prove the witchcraft it being evident and notorious to all beholders. Bridget Bishop was hanged June 10th, 1692. It wasn't without controversy. One of the judges appointed to the special court actually resigned after the hanging. We think that he pretty much left the bench in protest of this case. We can't really prove that, but I think there's pretty good circumstantial evidence that 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 was the case and that the whole witch trials really uh, disturbed him a great deal. That left a panel that was 100% execution happy. 
17 more people would die in three public hangings between then and August. And then there were the charges against Giles Corey, an 80-year-old man. Giles Corey was not that nice a guy. He was accused of committing arson, of trying to burn down his neighbor John Proctor's house. He was convicted of essentially what we would call manslaughter. About 15 years before the trials, he had a, in in quotes, simple-minded teenage servant who he severely beat to the point where the the poor fellow died a couple days later. He was severely fined for it and was, was found guilty. After Giles and his wife, Martha, were accused of witchcraft, He refused to plead either guilty or not guilty to the charge against him because the law at the time stated that a person who refused to plead couldn't be tried. The judges didn't want him cheating justice, so they stripped him naked, put heavy boards across his body, and began piling stones on top of the boards. This wasn't a new concept. It originated in France, actually. But this was the one and only time it didn't elicit a plea from the accused. Corey endured stone after stone. Sometimes, Judge Jonathan Corwin would stand on top of the stones for added weight. Corey was begged to enter a plea, to which he reportedly replied, more weight. At one point, the pressure from the stones crushing his body was so great that his eyes bulged and his tongue thrust out of his mouth, and Corwin shoved them back in with his cane. It took two days for Giles Corey to die. Now, Corey's death was a bit of a turning point, in part because it had been so gruesome. People figured, jerk or not, Corey didn't deserve two days of unfathomable torture. Public sentiment had been slowly shifting as more and more stood accused. People still believed in witchcraft and satanic possession and all that jazz, but they started to wonder if Satan could take the form of innocent people. Might we be wrongly killing people? Yeah, you might. The real debate over spectral evidence is whose specter is is causing the harm. And there is great debate about this. Some people believe that anybody's specter can be used by Satan and by, by witches. And this would mean that an innocent person's specter could be wrongfully used With this thought gaining traction, the execution stopped. It took a bit of time, as this sort of thing always does, but the outstanding charges against accused people were dismissed, and within months, those who'd been convicted were either cleared or at least spared their lives. Within a few years, the general consensus was that it had all been bogus. While the accusers never copped to making anything up, Most of them did find their afflictions suddenly alleviated. Abigail Williams was apparently an exception. She continued to suffer inexplicable fits for the rest of her short life. She's believed to have died around 1696, at about age 16. In January 1697, the Massachusetts General Court declared a day of fasting and reflection while 12 jurors who'd served in the trials signed a declaration of regret, asking forgiveness. Of the actual accusers, the supposedly bewitched, that is, Anne Putnam Jr. is the only one we know of who begged for forgiveness. She had accused dozens, including Rebecca Nurse, a 71-year-old grandmother who, by all accounts, had been a moral, upstanding, church-going person her entire life. Nurse was hanged alongside four others on June 19, 1692. 
two of her sisters had been jailed because they stepped forward to defend her. One of those sisters was hanged as well, two months after Nurse. Ann Putnam Jr. had been the chief accuser against Nurse and her sisters. When she confessed, she mentioned Nurse specifically and asked her family and God to forgive her. If other accusers ever ask forgiveness, their request didn't survive. But the record shows Anne at least felt horrible guilt. So did Samuel Sewell, one of the judges. He publicly confessed and then set aside a day each year to fast and pray for forgiveness. That continued until his death in 1730. These trials led to big changes in the judicial system, not just in this country, but across Europe as well. Thousands of witch trials had been held before Salem. Records are spotty, of course. But some 12,000 people are known to have been executed in Europe. The worldwide total is at least in the tens of thousands. Afterward, the belief was embraced that it's better to let a hundred guilty witches go free than wrongly convict even one. The presumption of innocence was born, and to that end, spectral evidence was banned. No longer could someone point to the air, claim to see the devil whisper in someone's ear, and have it count as proof of anything. Evidence had to be concrete, real. The trials also helped pave the way for separation of church and state. This isn't really the end of of the Puritan faith in New England, but I think it's kind of the beginning of the end. And I really do think that people begin to realize that maybe it's not the greatest idea to have the colony's ministers also being the top advisor to the governor. So, I, I, and I do think that that division of church and state, you sort of, is, is kind of kind of foreshadowed in this, absolutely. Because think about it. If the judges hadn't let their personal beliefs enter the courtroom, in this case, the religious belief that there's a Satan who possesses people for fun, they might not have been swayed by the convulsions and words of the hysterical accusers. In 2001, so 309 years after the ordeal, One of Emerson's Baker's students noticed that the state of Massachusetts had neglected to pardon five of the wrongly convicted witches, and so the governor did. The saga is officially over, but the impact lingers still. To research this episode, I read the book The Salem Witch Trials, a day-by-day chronicle of a community under siege by Marilyn K. Roach, watched several documentaries of the BBC and A&E variety, and referenced the Salem Witch Trials documentary archive and transcription project. Huge thanks to Emerson Baker, who not only agreed to be interviewed, but fact-checked a few things for me. Side note, the four-year-old girl that I referenced is sometimes called Dorcas and sometimes called Dorothy, and there's no consensus as to which is right. I stuck with Dorcas. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. 
and check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 